Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, thanks very much to John and Louise for leading us so far. Uh, this is the third in our series on lessons for the Revelation churches with the title, You've Got Mail. And it's a preaching workshop series, which means that a number of us had hands laid on us back in the spring, harshly in some cases, and were forced to do these sermons on a Sunday evening. I'm lying. Um, it's something we must have said yes to at some point, and uh, here we are. So we've had some training sessions by Moore Casement and Jonathan Worthington, and that's been helpful. Recent sermons, well, we had um, Alan Wilson doing some lovely sermons on the prodigal son a few weeks ago on Sunday mornings. We had Bishop Ken Clark last Sunday evening, and we had David McMillan last Sunday morning. So I'm feeling no pressure at all after all of that. So tonight we're traveling with this remarkable circular letter that is the Revelation. We're going to Pergamum, the third of the seven churches in Revelation. And in episode one, Stephen talked to us about Ephesus and said um, that Jesus had said through John, I know your perseverance, but you have forsaken your first love. And then we went to Smyrna with Drew, who told us about um, the poverty of the people there, but yet, yet they were spiritually rich. So we're heading to Pergamum tonight, and we're going to be finding that the, the Christians there were loyal but compromised. So the story so far, maybe you can find uh, Revelation chapters 1 and 2 as I'm telling the story so far, as it were. But uh, John, probably the gospel writer John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the son of Zebedee, uh, the brother of James, the fisherman, probably would be a, a very old man. It's probably himself who, who wrote uh, this uh, wonderful uh, revelation. He could have been in, in his 80s at this stage because it was probably around 95 AD. But he's got this remarkable vision that we call revelation, and it happened on the island of Patmos. You can see on the, the map there. A rocky outcrop, uh, about 10 miles by 5, about 40 miles off the coast of, of Asia Minor, that's present-day Turkey, to where he has been banished now, we might like the idea of spending a wee while on Patmos. It looks like this uh, today, but at that time it was a, a penal colony from which there was no escape. And John had lost all of his civil rights, all of his property. Maybe he was sentenced to hard labor, quarrying under cruel guards. We, we don't know. But life would have been pretty harsh, and he is certainly suffering and undergoing patient endurance. So he's already paying a high price for his faith. Why? Well, he tells us uh, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, chapter 1, verse 9. And that phrase in the Greek apparently could have three possible interpretations. The most obvious would be that he had been preaching the word of God and was being punished for having done so. Uh, maybe it means that he was there to preach the word of God. Maybe that's what he did any time he could to his fellow prisoners and maybe the guards as well. Uh, but perhaps he was there also to receive the word of God, maybe all three together. But certainly while on the island, he received a remarkable vision of Christ, as we read in chapter one, and he became a, a significant messenger for Christ. And what he was doing was delivering challenging words to a challenged church. And as was said by Stephen in week one, and following on from Desi Maxwell's evening series in September, sometimes we, we need that desert place to get a real vision of God. And John maybe had the, the time, the opportunity, the, the peace, perhaps, 
to see this wonderful vision and God took the opportunity to give it to him. But John is learning great constancy and fortitude and we can imagine for him maybe his greatest hardship was not the harsh conditions that he found himself in or the isolation from civilization, but maybe his isolation from his people, his flock on the mainland. He was missing them. Now we can see God's plan, plan for the church, plan for the future in placing John in these difficult circumstances uh, to get this extraordinary vision of Jesus. But it would have been very hard, let's not forget that, for John to be there. So he hears a voice behind him, like a trumpet, and he's told to get writing. And he turns around to see who's saying this to him. And he finds that the person who has this voice like a trumpet was like a son of man, walking among the seven golden lampstands, the seven churches, as we find out in in verse 20. And lampstands with lighted candles are surely a very good picture of churches trying to be lights in a dark world. So he proceeds to describe in the next five verses from 12 to 16 this uh, wonderful vision of Christ. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, we read in chapter 11. And we think of that first section as being seven letters. In one sense, they were. There are seven addresses, there are seven beginnings and seven endings and so on. But it was all written on one scroll. And all the different sections, as well as all the apocalyptic vision that comes next, were meant to be read by a leader, read aloud, probably, in each of the seven churches, preached at a gathering in each of these cities. I wonder what it was like to have heard Revelation for the very first time. Pretty mind-blowing, I would, I would guess. What must it have been like for each of those churches to hear both words of encouragement and also criticism addressed to your church and realize that all the other six churches had heard or were just about to hear all about your church, dirty linen and all. It would be just like a, a circular letter being sent to Balnehenge Baptist and St. Field and Carrie Duff and Newton Breda and Milltown and Great Vic and then it comes to us and everybody hears all the good stuff and all the bad stuff about everybody else and for us sort of independent autonomous Baptists that would be a bit of a shock I imagine. Um, the overall themes of the church uh, of, the, of these letters well Jesus with these eyes of blazing fire nothing is hidden from his all-encompassing x-ray vision, but the the overall themes were really to encourage faithful Christian living in difficult times, maybe in three different ways. Um, Reminding the churches of their mission, that they're being called to be lights in a dark world, their lampstands. Perhaps secondly, warning the churches uh, that they're in danger of various kinds, they're under pressure to compromise their faith under threat of persecution. And perhaps thirdly, to reassure the churches that Christ is walking amongst them, amongst the lampstands. He's able to keep them safe. He knows what they're up against. He rewards those who keep faith with him. So the churches don't at this time need any kind of pious pleading. What they need is a vision of the risen Christ uh, to inspire them, to rebuke them, to encourage them. And I think we've been seeing and will see tonight that that's exactly what they get. So these are messages to churches. But Jesus, through them, was also speaking to individuals because churches are made of individuals, aren't they? And it's individuals who determine the spiritual life of the group. So these aren't just messages for church leaders. 
but they're for all of us, and we must apply them personally as we examine our hearts. So who is receiving them? Well, um, it was a group of churches scattered over about a 200-square-mile area, uh, around about 95 AD, as I've said. So there were seven real churches, but they also represent the local churches of all ages and all lands. And as Stephen said in week one, the churches have got mail, but all other Christian churches, including us, have been copied in as well. I'd suggest we've been copied into the CC line, not the BCC line. If you're an email user, you'll know what I mean. What do you think would have been in the subject line there? Well, I think a good suggestion would be uh, keep on keeping on. That's what Jesus was saying through John to the churches. And in Belfast in 2014, I would argue, we've got lots of lessons to learn from this mail sent about 1920 years ago. And each of the letters has the same kind of structure. There's an address, there's a description of Christ that's taken from the first description in chapter 1. There's a commendation, the good news. Then there's a reprimand, the bad news, apart from two churches who had a fairly clean bill of health. Then there's an exhortation to do something, and then there's a promise. So can you keep that structure in mind as we read together? Um, Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 12, to the church in Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So, Pergamum. Let's go to Pergamum. Well, it was the most northerly city, as you can see there, of of the seven churches. It was one of the largest cities in the region, probably second only to Ephesus in wealth and and population. And today it's called Bergama. Maybe some of you have been there. And the ruins of the Temple Acropolis area can be visited today. Uh, they're quite a, a tourist attraction. So it was an ancient royal city on top of a hill, fortified hill. It had a commanding position. And the Romans had made it a provincial capital. And it had grand public buildings, including a library with 20,000 scrolls, second only to Alexandria in the ancient world. And it had a large open air theatre that you can see here. And it had temples, lots of temples, not only to Zeus and Athene and Dionysus, but also to a local god called Asclepios, who was a healer of the sick. It was the kind of lords of its day. And smoke from countless sacrifices at these temples would have been constantly rising. And there was a great altar on the Acropolis, which sat uh, where this is now, 
about a thousand feet above the city, very spectacular, a bit like our own escarpment here that we can see from outside the church with Divis and Black Mountain and so on. That's the scale of this. And all of that together probably means, it's probably where the meaning of where Satan has his throne comes from in verse 12. And it's said twice where Satan lives in verse 13. Um, Jesus calls Satan in John 14, the ruler of this world, And this is where Jesus, through John, is saying that Satan has his throne. It was Satan HQ, and it wasn't an easy place for these Christians to be. Interestingly, what used to be there, the great altar, has been taken lock, stock, and barrel 50 or 60 years ago, and it now lives in Berlin. I was talking to to David McMillan about this. He's been there and seen this. So if ever you're in Berlin... Uh, go and see the Pergamum Great Altar and imagine what it was like to, to be there. Now, one of the main reasons for uh, Pergamum being such a difficult place for Christians to be, well, it was one of the earliest places where emperor worship, the imperial cult, was established. And it seems as if it was a main center in the region, and certainly they took their emperor worship um, pretty seriously. And persecution of Christians had begun uh, a number of years before at the time of, of Nero, say 25-odd years before, but his persecution was localized, mostly to Rome, and it was pretty scattered. It, it, wasn't, um, it, it, wasn't, it was sporadic, but now it was systematic, and it was very widespread. And this guy here, the Emperor Domitian, he certainly wanted to be worshipped. And it was a pretty serious situation for those who didn't. A refusal to worship the emperor became an offense. It was denying divine honor to the emperor. So it wasn't just a religious matter, uh, but it was political subversion as well. And the Pergamum Christians were feeling very persecuted, abandoned, fearful about their future, surrounded on all sides by pagan and occult influences. They were definitely under pressure. Interestingly, they're not told anywhere in the letter that they should leave. Jesus issues a warning and an encouragement to stay, to stay loyal and to stay true. Now, if you look at all of the letters to the churches in Revelation, um, Jesus says, I know, at the beginning of all of them. He says, I know your deeds, I know your hard work, I know your perseverance. What does he say to the churches in Pergamum? I know where you live, is what he says. Now, when we hear the phrase, I know where you live, maybe you've watched a lot of cop shows or gangster movies, and somebody says, I know where you live, it's a threat, isn't it? You know, If you don't do this or if you do do this, I know where you live and we'll come and get you. Maybe it reminds you of this character, okay? Liam Neeson in the film Taken from a few years ago, and he's a, a special forces operative, retired, aren't they all? And uh, he has found out that his daughter... 17-year-old daughter has been abducted in Paris by sex traffickers and by hook or by crook he's got one of them on the phone and he tells them all about the special skills that he has in threatening them and what does he say at the end? He says, I will look for you, I will find you and I will kill you in a Balamina American accent like that. And you kind of know that that's exactly what's going to happen. Sorry, that spoiler alert there I should have said. But I know where you live being said in this case is not a threat by any means. It's, it's very much the opposite. Jesus is saying, I know about your difficult circumstances. I'm intimately familiar with all that you're going through. Now, surely it's not too much of a leap even at this stage to make an application right of way. Um, Jesus knows where we live. He knows our 
circumstances. He walks among the seven lampstands, not floating high above them, looking down. God is watching us from a distance kind of thing. But he is with us. The living, glorious Jesus is present in his church, however small and despised that church may be, and he's a spiritual, invisible presence with his church and with each of us as individuals. Now, some of us have been placed in in easier places. Lovely verse from Psalm 16. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, but others are in much more difficult places because of health situations, maybe uh, family and work situations in which, in which it's very difficult to witness. Um, and if so, you may be the only one on, on whom God can depend to be his representative and his witness in those circumstances. And that may be a tough calling, but Jesus knows where you live. He knows your circumstances. Hence the, the nice focus earlier on on Psalm 139, a wonderful psalm in which the psalmist describes in a poetic way how well God knows us. That he's everywhere. He's been there before us. We can't get away from him even if we want to. Now, I've got a lot of uh, vinyl LPs in our attic um, that I haven't listened to for decades now, I would say. I hope they're okay. I'll get them out sometime. And on one of them, it's a Cliff Richard album, going all the way back to the late 70s, early 80s. There's a few well-known songs on that, but there's one that's a, a paraphrase of Psalm 139. And it says this, You were there at the moment I began, when the child became a man, saw my future in the making, saw the path my life was taking, saw a million things I'll never understand. In verse 2, you are here, so let it rain or let it shine. You are with me all the time, when I'm waking, when I'm sleeping, in the secret thoughts I'm keeping. You know everything about this heart of mine. And the chorus, you know me better than I know myself, better than I know myself. Time after time, you've shown it to be true, that no one loves me like you. Now, you can find that on YouTube if you want to. Uh, the song and Cliff are looking young uh, back then, but... Um, and it's sort of it's dated, but the words are great, and uh, I challenge you to go find that. But as we've heard, the song ends in a prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Jesus knows where we live. He knows us better than we know ourselves. But we need to acknowledge that presence in our circumstances. We need to practice his presence. Now that ties up with things that were said this morning by David McMillan. If you were here, um, we were thinking about the change of attitude from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Exodus 17, where the Israelites were um, complaining to Moses and saying, is the Lord among us? And the big change to Philippians chapter 2, when we realize that we are in Christ and that God is present with us and in us, and that's both a privilege and a responsibility. Now, those of you who know me know that I can be a bit of a pedant sometimes when it comes to accuracy of written and spoken English. Um, I'm the deputy chief constable of the apostrophe police uh, as well, by the way. Um, I think it comes with a job. I do spend an awful lot of my time uh, reading and proofreading and checking and marking other people's uh, written English. I had a conversation with a colleague a few weeks ago, can't remember what the conversation was about, and in the middle of it, he used the phrase, uh, under the circumstances. 
Okay? And I finished the conversation, and, and just for the crack, because he knows me well, I said to him at the end, I prefer in the circumstances. I think I might be a very annoying person, maybe I, just having said that out loud. But you don't have to be a Latin scholar, Joanne, um, to know where the root of the word um, circumstances comes from. Circum, circle, you know, circumference, around, things that are around. And a stance, well, we talk about somebody with a certain stance or a certain position on something. So stare is at the bottom there. You can see if you've got good eyesight. Circum and stare, that's where the word comes from. So circumstances are things that stand around us. So why would we be under them? We should be in them. Isn't that right? And when I think of the word circumstance, I must admit I think of that. Stonehenge. Been there a couple of times. Um, 20 years ago, I'm sure, was the last time I was there. And you can't get right in the middle of them anymore. You're not allowed unless it's Midsummer's Day and you're a druid or a hippie. But uh, you can imagine yourself in there. And I think of myself in those circumstances and those big rocks and the trilithons and so on are standing around me. And Jesus says, I'm in there with you. I'm in your circumstances. Okay. So Jesus knows for these Christians in Pergamum, he knows their circumstances. He knows the ultimate source of all the Pergamum Christians' troubles, uh, persecution and error and sin the devil was definitely at work. He was attacking from several different directions. There was physical attack. There was intellectual attack and moral attack, spiritual attack. Uh, we know it's no different today. The devil's tactics uh, don't really change, although the specifics do. The imperial cult is not around for us anymore, but the devil is still at work in hearts and minds and in churches. Um, in addition to all the everyday trials of life that the Christians in Pergamum had in just keeping their faith alive, they were tempted and compromised by paganism and occultism and increasing tension with the Jews, and they really needed to be reminded of the power of Jesus. So what reaction, reactions do people have whenever they're under pressure? Well, we know that being under pressure can possibly strengthen your determination and your commitment in anything and especially to, to serve the Lord in, in a Christian context. Or they can weaken your faith, and cause us even to lose it sometimes. And it was the same for the Pergamum church. But they are commended, I know where you live, says Jesus, yet you remain true. Even in those difficult Satan HQ circumstances, you remain true to my name. They had been loyal. They'd held firmly to their convictions uh, that Christ was the one true Lord and Savior, the only one who was due their worship. And they'd put their trust in him. They'd refused to bow to the conventions of their city, and as a result, they were marginalized. Maybe they were shunned in business. They were hated by some. They may have been attacked. But they had been steadfast. And even when one of their number had been martyred in the city, possibly publicly, publicly we don't know, but the word martyr means witness. And Antipas had witnessed by his death uh, as a deterrent, I imagine, to other Christians or, or other preachers. And as a result, you see the name there that uh, Antipas is given. It's Christ's own name, repeated from chapter 1, verse 5, faithful witness. So even in the days of Antipas, many of them had been faithful witnesses. But, says Jesus, I have a few things against you. He says, you have people there. Um, Satan hadn't been able to destroy them coming as a roaring lion, but now he was making inroads as a deceiving servant, serpent. And the Pergamum church seemed to have been tolerating in their midst some false prophets, 
verse 14, it seems that alongside the loyalty there was compromise. And some had opted for softer options, an easier way. They'd gone along with, they were maybe accepting of, among them, some heathen practices of their neighbors. Maybe they were being made to feel that it didn't really, you didn't really have to take Jesus so literally. What would be the harm in compromising just a wee bit? Maybe it would start with being asked to burn incense at the temple and say, Jesus, uh, Caesar rather, is Lord. Such a small thing and refusal would seem unreasonable, perhaps. And some maybe were happy to eat food sacrificed to idols, just enjoying the pagan practices. Surely idols aren't real anyway, they might have said. Surely Christians should be seen to be good citizens, shouldn't we? It's nice to fit in. Maybe the temple was the only or maybe the cheapest source of meat. Emperor worship ceremonies enabled large numbers who couldn't afford meat to get some as they took part in feasts involving meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And not taking advantage of this bounty from the sacrifices was a sacrifice for the Christians. Maybe caused them hardship. Perhaps the the poorer pagan classes who did eat the meat may have despised the Christians' refusal to do so. Uh, They may have believed that it would anger the gods and cause natural disasters or whatever, but there were just lots of pressures on them. So why the need to have such a different lifestyle for these Christians? Well, I think firstly the Christians in Pergamum needed to hold fast to the truth about Christ. And for some their allegiance to Christ was becoming divided and compromised and watered down. But when Caesar claims the worship that belongs to God alone, says John from Jesus, um, he must be resisted. In the church at Ephesus in week one, we saw that love was lacking there. Here, truth was being compromised. But surely truth and love need to be held in a balance. Now, somebody has once said that some people try to drown their doctrinal differences in the ocean of brotherly love. To drown your doctrinal differences in the ocean of brotherly love. But that way can lead to compromise and sin. On the other extreme, some people can be so dogged in their zeal for God's word that they become harsh and bitter and unloving. And John Stott said this. See if you can get your head around what he's saying. Love becomes sentimental if it is not strengthened by truth. And truth becomes hard if it's not softened by love. So we need to hold the truth in love and love others in the truth. Now I could leave up that on the screen for five minutes and you could try and drink it in, but we've no time to do that. There's an awful lot there. Truth and love held in balance. Pretty important. So the Christians in Pergamum needed to hold fast to the truth about Christ, but secondly, they needed to hold fast to the truth about holiness. And that's where these Nicolaitans come in. They had a policy of accommodation, a bit like Balaam, who's mentioned here. And the whole story of Balaam you'll find in Numbers 22 to 25. We're not going to go there, but in brief, he'd led the Israelites into idolatry. And Balak, the king of Moab, one of the the Canaanite kings, he'd summoned the prophet Balaam to come and to curse the Israelites who were about to cross over into his land, the promised land. But every time Balaam tried to open his mouth to curse the Israelites, blessings came out. It was very strange. And Balaam realized he wasn't making any progress and he wasn't going to get paid as well. So he devised a cunning plan and he suggested that Moabite women should be sent to seduce the Israelite men by inviting them to take part in their idolatrous and their immoral feasts. 
And it's likely that what's being referred to here for Pergamum is that some of the Christians had patronized the, the temple prostitutes. So the name Balaam, interestingly, means Lord of the people, and the word Nicolaitans means to rule the people. So what's being said here, probably too subtle for most of us, is that Balaam was the old Israel and the Nicolaitans were the new Israel. Nothing's changed. There's a subtle attack by the devil. Maybe they were busy saying, uh, liberty, we've got liberty. Christ has made us free. And that's a liberty to sin. We're redeemed from the law, they might have said. We're no longer under the law. We're under grace. We can continue to sin so that God's grace grows towards us in forgiveness. What's the harm in, in doing any of this? Of course, Paul argues against these ideas in letters to the Romans and to the Galatians. So nowadays, maybe we can think that the battle against evil isn't so dramatic and so obvious. There's nothing so overt as is happening in, in Pergamum. The devil's attacks maybe for us are more subtle, perhaps, more secret, less obvious, more private. They're a bit more um, sermon on the mount, what's in your heart kind of sins, aren't they? But if we define an idol as something that takes the place of God in our lives, then we can quickly make a list of modern idols that we can be drawn to. And Christ could say something very similar to those two things on the screen to our churches today, couldn't he? We need to guard against yearning so strongly for acceptance among people with whom we work and whom we live with and so on that sometimes we seem to lack any principles. And we need to be both welcoming to all on the one hand and yet sure of what we stand for. And we've talked about that recently as a church, haven't we? The idea of having permeable edges but a definite center of our belief and holding both of those in, in tension. So Satan persecutes and Satan seduces. And the Christians in Pergamon need to hold fast to these two things. And Peter exhorts us, for example, in the second one, to be holy. For I am holy, says the Lord. It's not an optional extra. It's, it's a calling. And then the last things that are said to the letter are an exhortation uh, to repent. Who was to repent? Well, I think both the false teachers, the Nicolaitans, for example, and those who were tolerating them, they both needed to repent. It's a call to repent by Christ and it's the Christ who's got this double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, a very strange image. And it's a reference maybe to Hebrews 4. The, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And also maybe reference to the sword of the Spirit that we read about in Ephesians 6, one of the, the whole armor of God, uh, pieces of equipment. And the sword is God's word. And these are references to God's word, the way in which victory is, is won. And it's clear that on some day in the future, this sword will change its function. It'll become a sword of judgment. I will fight against them, verse 16 says, with the sword of my mouth. But as well as this exhortation, there are promises, and two rather strange promises they are too. Like all of the messages to the church, this one ends up, he who has an ear, let him hear. And the closing appeal, therefore, is maybe a little bit more to each individual. So instead of sacrificing, instead of eating food sacrificed to idols, uh, the Christians at Pergamum were going to get hidden manna. Now there was a Jewish tradition that when the temple was destroyed, Old Testament time, Jerusalem, sorry, Jeremiah had uh, hidden the golden pot of manna that had been kept in the Ark of the Covenant. And when the Messiah came, the story went that this would be discovered and brought back. Maybe that's an allusion um, to this hidden manna. Uh, back in the Exodus story, the Israelites wandering in the desert, they had to pick up manna every day and it didn't keep. 
Manna was provided by God each new day, apart from at, at weekends, if you remember. But this hidden manna was provided by the bread of life himself. And it was provided once for all. It would be celestial food, not available to the world. It would satisfy spiritual hunger and it would nourish the faithful in Pergamum while on this earth. But ultimately, it referred to final heavenly feast prepared for all who know Christ. It's the bread of heaven that's going to be sung much about in the Millennium Stadium in the next few months in the Autumn Internationals. Every time you're watching a rugby match involving Wales um, and they're singing bread of heaven, you think of this, a hidden manna. But there was a second rather strange promise. I'll also give him a white stone with a new name on it. What's that all about? Well, Leon Morris and his commentary, he, he gives seven different suggestions, but here are two of them. Um, one is, a, a, one that I like, uh, a juror comes forward at the end of a trial and he gives in a white stone to say, I think the person is innocent, or a black stone to say that I think he's guilty and there'd be a name on it of the person either being acquitted or being condemned. Maybe it refers to what athletes would get as part of their prize if they did well in the games. It was a kind of universal ticket, uh, an access all areas backstage pass, which they could use to get them into various feasts and other events within the same games. Access all areas with a name on it, a new name. name names were very special in ancient times, conveying something of the character of the individual. Whatever these two things mean, they both refer to the ultimate reward, uh, the marriage feast of the Lamb uh, in heaven. I think the big plus for the church at Pergamum was that it survived at all in the very difficult circumstances where it was placed. Um, in my world in education, we write an, a lot of uh, aims or learning intentions or intended learning outcomes. We write them for modules that we teach. And I teach my teacher education students to write learning intentions for lessons and for units of work and so on. Now, if those on the screen are some of the learning intentions for these letters to the churches, have they been fulfilled for this church at Pergamum? I would suggest they have. Um, have they been reminded of their mission? Yeah, I think they have. Have they been warned that they're in danger? Well, definitely. And thirdly, have they been reassured that Christ is walking among them? I think they most definitely have as well. So Pergamum, yep, it was loyal but compromised. They had been loyal, but there were dangers there. And they were told to hold fast to the truth about Christ and to hold fast to the truth about holiness. But Jesus says, I know where you live. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He is among the churches. He is among the lampstands, not floating high above them somewhere. He's with us in our circumstances. We're going to finish this evening um, by singing this song. That was my suggestion to the guys here, and I don't think they knew it at all, but um, some of the older ones among us will. At your feet we fall, mighty risen Lord. It's one which harks back to that same time, Cliff Richard time, I imagine, um, back to the 80s. But it speaks of the vision in Revelation. It speaks uh, in a number of the verses of aspects of that vision. And it's a song of worship. I am he that liveth, that liveth, and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. You may not be very familiar with it, but have a go. By the time we get to the third verse and chorus, you'll, you'll be with us. So let's stand and sing.